just going to be straight with you right at the front here. This is going to be this is going to be a bit heavy today. Okay, in some ways, this is going to be a bit of an unusual service. Last week was unusual because we had a bunch of tables and food in here. That was probably more preferable than this one because <laughs> we ate. Uh, there's a, I got something heavy to bring so as far as just material content and really trying to address and tackle some things. It's a macro approach sermon. And uh, to be honest with you, I've, I've been on the stage and I've preached it five times already in preparation for today. Which is... Um, because I just needed to get it ready and get it across. And um, so I'm, I'm burying the lead here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the bad news right up front here. Um, and every time I've preached, it has taken me over an hour of speaking, like a few minutes over an hour. I don't preach that long normally. So <laughs> I've not yet done it less than that. So it's really, it could be three sermons. It could be a three-sermon series in, in, instead. But I couldn't afford to break them apart because we would miss one or the other. I just needed to get it all together because it all goes together. And I don't know any the other way. I'm going to be honest with you, I, I'm exhausted. And I'm not acting for pity. I'm just telling you, I am from that, from the, just the work of preparation. I've been looking at the sermon for months now. In the last few weeks, it's been on my mind daily. And I'm exhausted from that, and I will be after this. But I'm also exhausted from the, from the stress I feel of knowing I'm going to take so long. And I'm just apologizing up front for that. The good news is that if you, you feel like it made you a few, get out the door a few minutes late for lunch, uh, great news is that Phil Needler is going to buy anyone uh, lunch anywhere they want to today. And his dime, he said he's got you covered. Um, uh, any place for steak, or tube steaks, that's what it was, uh, or something like that. Anyhow, seriously though, I'm, it's a mouthful. And I'm just telling you up front, if you're visiting with us today, my apologies to you. This, you came, the weird, uh, this is not normal. This, the length of my sermon is not close to normal. And even the, the topic, we're, just, we're dealing with some macro I, things that, that should be said from the church in general. And I'm saying from, from, to our church. It's just a big, it's a big topic. And this is one of those things. I've not preached a sermon like this that was this heavy in my preparation since, since January of 2013. So almost 10 years ago since I did something like this heavy. But it needs to be done. So you're like, okay, Arlen, shut up and do it. Okay, here it comes, okay? But do me a favor. Do me a favor. Stay with me. If you get tired in today's message, uh, if you need to stand in the back and stretch or sip coffee or do jumping jacks, you know, feel free. As long as you're not loud or distracting anyone else from paying attention, I'm asking you to do what you need to do to, to stay with me. Lean in. Because if you, along the way, we're going to build on some things that will all come together. But if, you're not, if, you, if I miss you along the way, you might miss the topic. So just bear with me on this most unusual day. We'll be back to normal next week, okay? No more meals in the auditorium like last week and no more hour-plus-long sermons from me. But the good news is, when I'm done preaching, here's the other good news. We're done. We have one song and it's less than four minutes long. So when I finish speaking and walk off, we'll be out the door in less than four minutes. There's no extra hoopla. So this is it. This and a four-minute song. Okay? Are you with me? Okay. I hope, you'll, I hope you'll be gracious because here we go. Okay. If I start talking too fast, it's because I have a lot to say. I know I never talk fast. Don't laugh. When you, it hurts me when you laugh when I say that. That, that hurts my heart. But you can, uh, you can go ahead and just do this to me, and I'll, and I'll get the hint, okay? But I got a lot to cram in here. Here we go. I've been a pastor now for nearly 24 years this November. 
And I've been in church world my entire life. When I was a boy, my dad was in seminary, um, or we called it cemetery, um, training for ministry uh, full-time. And I was in a very intense religious environment because of that all the time. As a teenager, my dad was a pastor of a small church in Morley, Michigan, and I saw um, very firsthand that world. When, when I graduated from high school, Michelle and I both met, uh, we knew each other in grade school, got back together, came to Bible college. We went to Bible college together, her and I. We dated there, fell in love, and got married. And now for almost 24 years, I've been a pastor of Lighthouse Church in Cedar Lake. New building location for uh, Lighthouse and a new church for the former FBC members. But same, I've been here in this organization for 24 years almost. Something that I've learned in nearly a quarter of a century as a pastor and more as a son of a, son of, son of a one, anyhow, something I've learned is this. In the church world, when it comes to religious people, there tends to be one of two paths that we take in how we do our faith in our Christian journey. And I don't mean our different doctrines. There's a billion of those different viewpoints. I don't know about just macro approaches to our faith and our Christianity and how we interact with others in, in our faith and outside of our faith. There seems to be two, one of two paths that Christians tend to take. And these paths, someone could try to take them both and say, I could do both, but we don't. At some point, these paths tend to diverge. That's just how it goes. I'll explain more momentarily. Because there's a dissonance between them. On the one hand, one path is to be is for religious people. And by the way, when I say religious people, therefore churches are the same way. Churches are made up of people. So one path is for people or churches to be consumed by what is right and who is wrong and fight against others over issues and positions you know, and stake our flag, so to speak, and, and, and prioritizing getting it right and creating purity tests for true doctrine and who's really on with God and who's right and wrong. So denominations and splits and all that stuff comes from. Kind of getting it right. That's one path. The other path, the other path is to be consumed or caught up in serving people, especially those most in need of it physically financially, emotionally, and especially need of it spiritually. And be so consumed in serving and trying to find ways to serve and show love and then using the opportunities that that approach brings to point people to God who loves them even more. And these are two paths. I could word it this way. The paths are those concerned with what is right and who is wrong or those who are consumed and concerned with serving others in love. And I'm going to tell you this again. These paths tend to diverge. There's so much of a dissonance there. All my life I've watched this, and I'm, just all my life, and, and we'll see it in Scripture momentarily. But in all my life, if you try to say, well, I'll, I'm going to go down the passion for serving others and figuring out a way to reach those who don't know the Lord, who, who walked away and got hurt, or those who are still in but are fragile, versus I'm going to just be a serving approach person, but I'm still going to be like all about my core things and issues and verses and this. At some point, the more you get passionate and involved and plugged into the, to the metrics of people's lives, you just start dreading the pettiness that comes with the other path. At some point, you begin to say, I don't even want to bring this over here because it's what turns people off or drives them away. It's not helpful. It's not the main thing they need to know. You just, you just at some point, it always pushes you away from that kind of dogmatism. It just does. 
Or people who sit there in their path and they'll say, no, 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 I'm, you know, this is the issues and this is what it's about, but we're a serving group. They can for a little while, but the paths diverge. At some point, it becomes hard to serve the people who are so messy. And they mess up the lines and they mess up the, and how do you deal with that and confront that? And at some point, you begin to say, that they're just the people out there and we need to pray for revival. And if folks, if maybe they weren't chosen anyhow, they can come crawling back. We have all these weird ways of defending that our whole issue is, I'm right, who's wrong? We're going to fight about these issues and we're going to draw our camps and our sects. And these paths always, my experience has been, they always diverge at some point. And once in a while, someone might try to prove they're in the other, but it won't last long because you can't straddle those lines. They go opposite directions. And you say, well, Arlen, that's just your life experience, but that's limited. That's a, that's a small sample size. And I would agree with you, but it is my sample size. But also, I see it in Scripture. Because it's something that Jesus encountered when he walked this earth. Setting up the Scripture before we turn there. When Jesus walked this earth, there was already a bunch of religious people in Israel. The Jewish nation was full of people who had their Scriptures. They didn't have the, well, we, the Christian Scriptures weren't penned yet. But they had the Hebrew scriptures, which we've all combined into our Bibles. Pulled out the Apocrypha, but the rest is there. You know, but they had their, their, uh, their scriptures. And these are people who read the scriptures, memorized the scriptures, and measured other people according to the scriptures. And they, and they all had their, and they fought about who was right. And they were distant. They were, put, they were distant from the people that were not as devout as them, they called the other people sinners. Not because no one was else was a sinner, but because they don't love God like we do. Or they called them the publicans or tax collectors. In other words, you either are spiritually wrong in my eyes or you're politically wrong in my eyes. Either way, I have nothing to do with you. But we're the God crowd. We're the crowd that cares about what's right. Getting it right. But within that crowd, they had different sects and they broke down. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They both had different views and they both had Old Testament, they had scriptural reasons why they believed they were right. And even within those sects, he had subsects, like the Pharisees had the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, arguing about who understood it right. And they would fight with each other. The only time they would pause to agree was when they were agreeing that the rest of the world was worse. But they would all fight with each other about, I mean, they were killing each other. And Jesus shows up, and he just takes this whole different path. He just walks out and starts to serve people. I mean, he's God. He has all the answers. But he just starts to serve people. He begins to heal, cast out devils. Raise the dead sometimes, heal people, fed, fed the multitudes. And as the crowd came to him because he did that, he would teach them. But he didn't teach them the way that we would expect a, a person to supposed to teach them in those days. He never said, today we're going to open up the scriptures to Deuteronomy chapter 14 and study the first seven verses together. Jesus never did that. He would tell them parables. He had the crowd's attention and he would tell them stories that they could relate to in their everyday life. Stories like you had a bunch of sheep and one of the sheep got lost and you got to find it. Or, or your plant, the kingdom of heaven is like a planting in your field and you're, that you're, you're going to harvest your crops. And he would use these stories to build ideas about God, who God was, and God's kingdom and God's love. He never said, and so furthermore, uh, to study the back half of Leviticus this week, never did that. He just gave people simple stories and helped and served and served. And the religious crowd of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others, couldn't abide that. They're like, if we're, we're waiting for a Messiah to come, he's also come and get into one of our groups and tell us which of us is right, it's obviously mine, is right, and, and you're over here doing their own thing, and you're friends with sinners, and you're eating with them, and you're doing this other stuff. You can't be from God. 
But Jesus just had this other path. And the only time he got into the other path was when the Pharisees would bring the fight to him. They would follow him around, they'd find fault, and they would bring their sectarian fights to him. And when they did, he would deal with them. Because he had to. Otherwise, he spent his time just serving the people and and, and using the chance to point them to God and his kingdom and his love. These paths diverge. Well, the thing is, on the one side is the serving side of Jesus, but the other side, here's something interesting to notice. You know, you never see a serving Pharisee. You just never see a serving Pharisee. They would walk across the road to avoid serving and helping somebody in trouble. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we have Bible stories to tell us that. They just did, you didn't serve. You're too busy getting it right and deciding who's in and who's out and what's wrong and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And over here is Jesus just serving, but you never see a serving Pharisee because again, why? We already said why. Because you don't have enough time and energy to be consumed with everything that's wrong with the world and everyone that's wrong with the world and still have time to be consumed with serving and loving those same people that you're convinced are the problem. And so as I pivot into our main direction for today, I want to point out one more thing about the Pharisees. And by the way, no one's a Pharisee. If someone says, you're a Pharisee, technically you're not. You can say, no, I'm not. I'm not a first century Jewish religious person in robes or nothing like that. Okay, obviously. But the Pharisees had certain kinds of religious behaviors that were missing the point of God so that when God showed up, they didn't even recognize him. But they were religious people. Don't, don't demonize them too fast. They loved the scriptures, they read them and memorized them, and they cared about getting it right. So we pick on the Pharisees, but they were just trying to do the God thing the right way. Now, eventually, that gets corrupted. But we can look at the Pharisees and find that they had some tendencies or some Pharisaical behaviors that apply to us. And something I want to point out is this. Pharisees are people who worry so much about what God said that they forget why he said it. That will be evident in a few minutes here. So worried about what God said that they forgot why he said it. And the problem with being in that lane of dogmatism the problem with being in that lane is this. It will always make us a hypocrite in the end. It always will. It just does. If you can force someone to get out of their little echo chamber and out of their silo and have some hard conversations. Some people wall themselves off from hard conversations. We get our little choir around us and we just sing to each other. But if you ever get people in that lane to have a hard conversation with their dogmatic positions, you can always, always flesh out the, the hypocrisy of their view of God and and scripture in time. It's just how it goes. If forced to face it, our zealous position ends up condemning our own life choices. So I'm going to get into Matthew 12 in just a second here, but here's a key idea to consider today, and I need you to catch this one as we get started. Every religious person and group has a verse to hang their head on theologically. I'm talking about even in Christianity, People who, different denominations, people who agree that Jesus is the Son of God and He's our Savior, but they don't even go, have, they've broken off into different denominations. Or within those denominations, they've broken off into sub denominations or different churches. They've left churches, split churches, fought with them, they fight. Every group, every person, every individual out there has a verse to hang their head on theologically. Isn't that confusing at some point? Because you're like, well, it shouldn't be that complicated. 
I mean, we have the danger thing, right? But we have all these verses and everyone's got a verse. And here's the thing about our verse. My verse counts. Now, if there's verses that someone has a different view than me and they have a verse to support their different view, you know what we do? Let's be honest in church world. What we do is we just ignore those verses that are not convenient. We just ignore those verses that don't fit into, I just don't know what to do with them so we don't talk about them. But the verses that kind of back up my point, you better talk about those. And if you don't accept my view on this, then you don't really believe the Bible. You're not a Bible-believing person. You know, it becomes difficult, doesn't it? But everyone's got a verse. That's nothing new. But sometimes it's the problem. I want to get into a story about Jesus getting caught between the law and love. And before I get started, i, I got to lay some groundwork. First of all, as we read the story today, we always empathize and pit with Jesus. We always do. Whenever we read the Bible, we always re- relate to the, the good guy. So if we're reading the story about Jesus, we're on team Jesus. And um, the bad people who oppose him, that's like all of our enemies too. You know, all the good verses are for me and the verses are bad. You know, we're good at that. We're that way in every part of life because we, just, we don't look at things critically either. And then, by the way, I'm team Jesus, just to make that clear. But we don't look at things critically. We don't look at, here's an example, our politics and our sports. We have our favorite team and our favorite political party, and our player and our candidate is always right, and if they ever do something wrong, no, they really didn't do anything wrong because <laughs> that's my side. And if someone criticizes them for doing something wrong, I'm defensive and saying, you're just trying to pick them, tear them down. You know, instead of just admitting, yeah, we, we blew it, you know. Because we're, we're, we're tribal, and so if we do that in politics and sports today, of course we do that when it comes to the Bible because it's easy with Jesus. We're definitely on his team. He's God, right? But it, it keeps us from looking at the, the tension of the stories with an open mind. And so before you villainize the Pharisees because they oppose Jesus and you know, Jesus is right, this is, this is pre-resurrection. They didn't have the benefit of the resurrection to look to. They just knew that they were, had the scriptures. They were trying to follow God, do it the right way. They've gotten off course, but they thought they were on course. And here's this guy who claims he's from God and he's doing these crazy things differently. There's a tension here. One of the things that Jesus did in his ministry was he would go around and he would have a ministry of healing people and helping people and feeding people. And you know what he did it? Seven days a week sometimes. In other words, including Saturday. You know what the problem, someone tell me what the problem was with Jesus doing all these healing and ministry work on Saturday. Someone tell me. What's the problem? It's the Sabbath, Sabbath day, right? The Sabbath day. Yeah, you don't, don't do things on the Sabbath day. Now, he did a lot. And it was, of all the things that the religious people found fault with Jesus, the biggest one was you're blowing the Sabbath day. Because they had a lot of verses about that in the Bible. So I'm going to show you one example, actually two examples in one passage of Scripture where Jesus deals with Sabbath day work. In a certain Matthew 12 and verse 1, it says that about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. Okay, they're just like, man, hey, here's food, I'm hungry, you know, we're going to harvest this right now and eat it. Verse 2, but some of the Pharisees saw them do it, because they were always either following them around to to find fault, or they were going to the same place. Some Pharisees saw them do it, and they protested. They said, look. Jesus, look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. (laughs) They're breaking the law. This is pretty clear. 
Now, if you don't know where the law is, and I know not everyone's read the Old Testament through a zillion times, um, there's so many verses that support what the Pharisees are saying here. I can take you to many. There's a, there's, I'll take you to the main one that's in the Ten Commandments. But there are others that kind of build a fringe explanation of this rule, explanation of that policy. There are several. But I'm going to take you just to the main one today. You say, why just the main one? Because I took you to all 17 of them or whatever. We'd be here all day. So the main one of the many scriptures they would point to, the Sabbath law, was found in Exodus chapter 20. In verse 8, in the Ten Commandments, it says this, Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy or set apart. Verse 9, you have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. Before I continue, I'm going to pause and just say this about that. Very clear. You don't do your ordinary work. Again, there's other verses in the Hebrew scriptures that back this up. But one of the policies that they had was you prepare, this is, there's, there's scriptures about this, they would prepare their food for Saturday on Friday because you weren't supposed to prepare your food or do any of your ordinary work. They'd prepare their food on Friday. No harvesting, no any kind of work. It was all done ahead of time. The only thing that the people were doing by the time Jesus is walking around is they're going to their local synagogue sometimes for worship on Saturday if it was close enough to stay within their walking rules. And then they go home and eat the food that they had pre-prepared the day before, not on the Sabbath day. And he says, you don't do your ordinary work on this day. The seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest. It's dedicated to the Lord your God. So now we're raising the bar. Now we're raising the bar higher by saying not only is this a command in Scripture, but it's a special dedicated day to the Lord. It's how you honor him. Okay? He goes on. He says, on that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. In other words, you and everyone under your leadership or your jurisdiction, everyone that you're accountable for, is not to do any kind of work on the Sabbath day. Clear? Verse number, and then, boy, then in verse 11, he ratchets it up. Because if, if anyone's wondering if this is just a seasonal command for a specific time, he's going to tie the significance. Don't miss this. He's going to tie the significance of this command about the Sabbath day to the very beginning, to creation, to God's original intent and design. He says this in verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. He says not only is this a command, that is the way you dedicate and honor the Lord, but it is tied back to the beginning, to God's original intent and to creation. It's a big deal. So when the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath laws, and again, we just looked at the central one. There's several other verses. They could have all whipped them out. When they were saying, Jesus, your disciples are breaking the law, they're violating the scriptures, they had the receipts to prove it. And so what does Jesus do? Does Jesus say, man, you're right. Disciples, I rebuke you. Guys, they apologize, we apologize, and let me validate that those verses, their authority. That's not what Jesus does. He does something kind of unexpected. Verse three, Jesus answers them. Jesus said to them, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? 
He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. Now again, because we're all team Jesus here, you know, whatever he says must be a mic drop moment. We're like, yeah! But if you, if you could just for a minute look at this from the Pharisees' point of view, and I know it's hard to do because we villainize them already, Look at it from your point of view. How many times have Christians today, maybe you, like to use the scriptures to say to somebody else, you're wrong, that behavior is wrong as the Bible says it's wrong right here. If we approach Jesus the same way with the scriptures that we do other people, we're not going to be satisfied with that answer that Jesus gave. Because Jesus' answer is kind of weird. He's like, oh yeah? Well, didn't you read another part of the Bible where it tells the story of David breaking the law? Not the Sabbath law. He broke a different law. Here's my answer. Well, David broke the law too. He was hungry. So? I mean, seriously, if, if we were criticizing Jesus like we do other people, we'd be like, so what? David also slept with his neighbor's wife and killed her husband eventually. Are we going to just make David the new standard for everything? Why are you telling me an example of some guy named David breaking a law as an answer to us calling out the legitimate issue at hand that the Sabbath day is not supposed to be done and you are breaking this specific scripture? This is a command, and you're telling me a story that's off topic. You're you're dodging Jesus. You're dodging the issue. Jesus goes on, verse 5. He says, And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath day? Again, if we were answering him with the Pharisees, we'd be like, Yes, we know that because the scriptures say it. The scriptures say don't work on the Sabbath and they give the exception that the the priests in the temple don't have to. We agree with you. That has nothing to do with your disciples eating it, doing it, picking it, harvesting it. What are you doing? And then Jesus goes on, verse 6, I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. It's a big thought. I want to come back to it in two verses, so hang tight. But I want to go to verse 7 first. Verse 7, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Again, satisfying to us because 2,000 years later, we know whose team we're on. But that is a very dissatisfying answer when you're saying, this is wrong and this is what the scriptures say. He's like, well, the scriptures also say this. Let me try to compare it to something in your life. It'd be like you going to somebody and saying, hey, you can't assault somebody and you can't kill people. Well, why can't I? Because it's wrong. The, the, the scriptures say it's wrong. The scriptures say right here it's wrong to assault people and kill people. And they're like, oh yeah, well, the Bible also says, judge not or else you'll be judged. And you're like, what? Yeah, I agree. But what is that? we're not talking about assault and killing here. What are you talking about? Are you saying that because the Bible says that too, that I'm judging you and therefore I can't do this or you can feel free to kill and assault people? I mean, what is that argument? Stay on topic. Jesus is like, oh, well, the scriptures also say I want to show mercy. Agree, they say that. But they also say the Sabbath day, Sabbath day, over and over again, Sabbath day. And then he adds this, he says, he's avoiding the strength of their argument because they have the verse. They have the verse says. They have the law. They have God's law on their side of the argument. And he avoids the strength of their argument. He says this in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now again, this goes back to the earlier verse that we kind of went through fast where he says, I'm greater than the temple. He, in other words, some of us, are sati- our, we're at, our answer is satisfied by saying, well, Jesus is just saying he's above it all and he can, he can trump all of the, the writings and your, he can trump your verses because he's God. Agreed. That does not help those of us in this lane over here of our, we're, we're right in our positions and our, we have a verse for it. That doesn't help. 
When you have God over here saying, yeah, the scriptures are so important, but then I can also say, yeah, you got your verse, but so what? Like, the Bible says this is how it's supposed to be, and you have to follow it, in this case, disciples. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know it says that, but so? I'm here. I say no big deal. What does that do? Where does that take, leave our, our argument with teeth for anybody else? Now you say, Arla, I'm confused. Are you dissing the scriptures in the Bible? No. I love the Bible. I read it through every year from cover to cover, and I study it by the hours, and I compare. I, we shouldn't compare. I, just, I do a lot of it. But let's be honest. It's not the problem isn't the Bible. The problem is our view of the Bible. Because we can always zoom in and find a verse. Everyone's got a verse for their issue. And this is my issue, and here's my verse to prove it, and if you don't see it my way, then you're wrong, and you don't believe the Bible. And the Pharisees were in that, we do that sometimes. The Pharisees had the argument over Jesus from the lens that we use our Christianity from to other people sometimes. And Jesus isn't done. But the way that many of us modern Christians would argue, we would say that Jesus lost. He was wrong. He's not done. Verse 9, it says, Then Jesus went over to their synagogue, where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. Guy's got a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, Does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? Big question. They knew the answer. It says they were hoping he would say yes so they could bring charges against him. In other words, they knew there was no magic verse that says, Yes. Thou mayest, you know, work by healing and stuff like that. So they're like, say, say it wrong, Jesus. We'll call you a heretic. And Jesus doesn't answer. It's interesting in this entire story, Jesus never gives them a, a, a verse on the topic of the Sabbath because he has none. He never says, well, yes, it says that in Exodus 20, but you didn't read Second Hesitations chapter 3 where it says, thou mayest walk through the field and thou mayest plucketh the, the grains if thy tummy is rumbly. He didn't say that because he didn't have that. So he kind of just took a different approach. He kind of reasoned with him. He kind of spoke about the bigger picture of what God was doing. And in this case, they said, well, what does the scripture say? And here's how Jesus answers them. He answered and said, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep you know what he did? He just called them out for their hypocrisy. I said this earlier, if you were listening, I said, the problem with taking the path of our issues and our, we have a verse of support and we're right and they're wrong and you can't do this and you can't, can't you know, the, the problem with that path is it will always expose you at some point as a hypocrite. It just does. It will happen. I'm as convinced of that as I've done this my whole, for this many years. If you'll have the honest conversations. And Jesus, in this moment, their dogmatism about the Sabbath day and their verse to back them up, Jesus is like, fine, you got a verse. Let's look at your verse. You're a hypocrite. Hmm. He says, you'll do it for a sheep. I'm saying a person's more important. And Jesus, in that moment, says, you're making a big deal about a verse. I'm making a big deal about a person. A person. Because that's the lane Jesus chose as he walked this earth. And he says, yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Which again, was just, what he's saying is, I don't have a verse, but this is the whole picture. This is the entirety of the law. And that's our problem. I'm not, we're not dissing Bible or Bible verses here. We're saying people get micro, and we have a lot of de defensiveness and dissension between people over micro honing in on verses. And Jesus is like, look at the big picture of God's word. It's pretty plain. 
You know what Jesus was saying to them in love? I believe Jesus was saying it in love. Maybe I'm wrong, but I believe he was. He was saying, you've got your verse, but you've missed the point. You've got your verse, but you've missed the point. And this is such a big thing to teach, because this happens, this just didn't happen in this story 2,000 years ago. This happens all of the time. We got our verse, but we've missed the point. Now, I've got to move off this story and get into the rest, because you think, is he almost done? Yeah, right. So here's the thing. One more thing that Jesus said before I move on. It's the same story when his disciples are walking through the grains and plucking and harvesting the grain and eating on the Sabbath day, and the, the, the Pharisees are like, you guys can't do that. Can us be honest for a minute? That's a little bit worse than the other. I mean, you can almost argue, should you heal a man, do your ministry work of healing on the Sabbath day, the guy's got a deformed hand? Eh, probably not, but maybe so. The Bible verse says this, but it's a gray area. We probably should stay on the safe side of the gray areas, but I can see the greater good. But how do you defend the disciples plucking the grains of corn? They're hungry. It's like, please, so you're hungry. Jesus fasted for 40 days one time when he was hungry. Can't you let your tummy be empty till you get home and obey the Sabbath laws? Is the Bible no more important than your fleshly needs? I mean, seriously, the disciples, there's no way you could justify this one. Like, they're breaking the Sabbath law because you're hungry? Is that, is that what it comes down to when my flesh wants food? Who cares what the verse says? So Jesus is confronted. They're breaking the law. Here's what Jesus said, and Mark, Mark records a statement that's so good, I want you to see it two different ways. First of all, in the ESV, it says, And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. If we can just stop and not read the past the Bible, like, yawn, yawn, next verse, please. That's powerful. That verse is, is a game changer. Some of us ought to take that home and just ponder it for weeks in meditation. This is a paradigm shifter. When Je they brought to Jesus, now he was wrong because of a Bible verse. Jesus said, you're missing the whole point. The Sabbath and your verse about the Sabbath, you're missing the point of what, it, what, what it's there for. Yes, I know what it says. But the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Before I show you the NLT on that, I want to just take you through, because I love the way this is written. This is so memorable. That's great. I love that wording. But I want to just take you through it. Jesus was saying, God didn't, from the beginning, create a world and create a structure and a system and rules and say, good, I got my system and my rules, and now I need to make some people to put in my system so they can follow my little plan and, and honor me that way. And he puts them in this little system, and then whenever people mess it up, he's like, oh, I can't cope. He's like, like some of us men who can't cope with someone messing up our little structure. You're messing up my structure. I can't cope, you know. I, I made this structure for you to obey. Jesus, that's not what God did. He didn't make people for a structure. He, he, he did things for the people. For the Sabbath day, for example, the children of Israel were at one time slaves in Egypt, and God brought them out of slavery. And now they, they went from working day and night as slaves to doing what everyone else was doing, working day and night to survive, raising their livestock, raising their crops. There is no break. Long days. No one had jobs with 40-hour work weeks and three weeks of paid vacation and 401Ks. You just got up in the morning, you worked until you dropped. You see what I'm saying? And you worked as long as you had to. And so, so Jesus, God comes along and says, folks, you need a break. You need to take a day off. Or you're going to break down mentally, physically, spiritually. You need to take a break. I'm telling you, take a break. Write it down. Codify this thing. Take a break. He said, guys, don't feel bad. But here's what the people would say. We can't take a break. 
we got to eke out an existence, and God would be like, trust me, I can take care of you. Some of you need to hear this today. This is not my sermon, but the world will keep turning if you take a break. You'll make it. You always have something to do, but if you don't take a break, you're going to die. You're going to kill yourself. You're going to break down. Take a break. And he says, I took a break. I'm an example. When I created the world, I saw that I could be an example, so I took a break. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The faster we get that, the bigger of a splash that makes. Here goes. Here's the NLT version of that. Ready? Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Wow. You guys have your verse. You got lots of verses about what, you're about what you believe, but you, you missed the point. You missed the point of God, what God was doing. You missed the big picture. God's laws were given to free people, not to enslave them. His laws and his directives are for our good. Yet repeatedly, the Bible gets used as a tool to wield control or restrict people, and it gets weaponized by people for their own purposes. And what happens over and over again is that, um, and usually people use it to come into power, to gain wealth, to be in control. And usually when religion is used that way, uh, some people prosper, and, and the people who suffer the most are usually women and children and the poor. When the Bible gets weaponized and we get the divisiveness, and, and people are driven far from God while others fight about what he really looks like and how we're really supposed to do him. This happens from people who are in this one path I mentioned at the beginning, more concerned about who's right and who's wrong than they are about just doing good. Jesus' life at the end was summarized. He went about doing good. And that couldn't be a better summary. And what I've been saying for a while today was setting up to give you a few examples before we're done, and that is this. This whole story of Jesus and the Pharisees and all that I've been talking about has happened so many times since then in history. Throughout history, people have run around with bad ideas, but they had a verse, or they had a bunch of verses to back them up. I'll pick an easy one that's easy to shoot down, it's easy to dismiss, but it's... I want to give a few examples. So here's one. The Crusades. Remember the Crusades about, what, a thousand years back when a bunch of European Christian nations decided it was best in their best interest to invade the Middle East, conquer and bring people, especially in Muslim countries, down, and a lot of pillaging and de- destruction and murders and bad things happened there. And, of course, it reclaimed the Holy Land. We look back on time, and skeptics look back on time at the Crusades, and they'll say, that's a blight against Christianity. And can I be honest, Christians today look back and say, yeah, we agree, but that's not what Christianity is all about. That has nothing to do with Christianity. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't take up swords and a weapon and kill people and build himself a little city and make him a kingdom. Jesus laid his life down and died. So the Crusades are not what Christianity is about. It's just religious people misusing the idea of Christianity. And that's our defense, and we're right. But that's because we're a thousand years removed. Go back in time and the people who were Christians, and I know we want to demonize them all because it's easy because it doesn't fit our narrative, but the Christians back then who were part of that justified it by saying, we have verses. There are verses that we can go into the Old Testament and being a man of war and conquering and conquest and examples. We can talk about reclaiming the Holy Land, all sorts of things to justify the things that took place with a Bible verse. Now, that doesn't really help most of us today, so let me get a little closer to home. In my lifetime, I was raised in a very strict, independent, fundamental Baptist church background. So was Michelle. 
That's how we were raised. That's how our parents were reached in the, in the church world by those kinds of churches. We were raised that way. I, I used to pastor that way because that's how I was raised. It took me years of pastoring to come out of the independent fundamental Baptist movement. Now, if you don't know what that is, they're very strict. You couldn't have drums on stage or guitars on stage for sure. That would be sinful. You could have pianos and organs, but that's because they were acceptable worship music. They weren't always, back in time, those were sinful at one time, but let's not talk about that either. But anyhow, you know, you could, certain kinds of worship you can do and not do, certain kinds of songs you can sing and not sing, certain English translations of the Bible you can use, and the rest were perversions. You had people fighting about, um, you know, dress, how you dress. Do you think I'm dressed today a little fit? So you dressed up, Arlen. I'd be underdressed for those days. I'd be sinning for not wearing a tie. Because they're supposed to. And girls did and guys did. And church was several times a week. And there's all these rules. But one of the weird rules in Independent Fundamental Baptist was that women were required to wear dresses and skirts. They were not allowed to wear pants. And I know for all of us that they were like, okay. But can I tell you something about that? They had a verse. In fact, I lived with it. They had, they had a verse. Would I miss something? Here was their verse. Deuteronomy 22.5, they'd say, a woman must not put on men's clothing and a man must not wear women's clothing. Anyone who does this is detestable in the sight of the Lord your God. And you get, you, there's no winning this argument. You say, well, that's not talking about that. Oh, please, they'd say, what do you think it's talking about? The kind of cap you're wearing or shoes you're wearing? Go to the, here's what they would say, go to McDonald's and look at the bathroom sign on the door. And you'll see a picture of a guy in pants and a girl in a dress because everyone knows that's what we're talking. You don't see a picture of the guy in a girl bathroom with a guy wearing a different kind of cap than her or shoes. It's obviously about the skirt and the pants. I remember a preacher one time walking around saying, you're letting your girls wear pants. If I come up here wearing a dress, you kick me out of this place, bless God, because you know it's wrong. So they're wrong, you know what I'm saying? This is, the, it's clear. What else can they be talking about? They're, it's an abomination. It's wrong. Here's the thing. I was, I was there, very close to home, still close to home with some family and friends. Let me tell you something about this idea. You cannot win an argument with somebody who has this position. Because what we do is we have a position and we find a verse to back it. They have a verse. There's no winning with that mindset. Trust me, I've tried. Let me tell you, just, I have a friend that when he was young, I, I, I worked with him. I actually, I mentored him for years when he was young. Love him dearly. Uh, we were young adults. Then he went into the ministry, and as a pastor, our church supported him financially for a number of years. Then he got out of the ministry and went to work and, uh, you know, raising his family, but still a Christian man. But he calls me one day on the phone and says, Arlen, I got to talk to you. He says, my wife wants to start wearing pants and letting our daughters wear pants, and I don't think they should. He says, I know you've already compromised on this issue. What in the world, you know? You've compromised on this issue, so I wanted to, um, you know, figure out, you know, if you got something to say, show me where I'm wrong. I said, okay, let's talk about it. He said, but hold on, before we talk, Arlen, here's the thing. I don't want to hear your logic and your reasoning. I want to use the Bible. I have a verse, and he quoted this verse to me. Here's my verse, so use the Bible. And I'd be like, well, that's, that you're, I said, you're taking that verse out of context. Said, don't tell me. Everyone always says that when they can't be honest with a verse. Show me a different verse. And I would try to reason with him about the big picture. I would give him a talk that I could give you for the next 35 minutes that no one needs to hear in this room because we're not struggling with that issue anyhow. But I, gave, I could try to talk to him and read. And he'd say, Arlen, all I hear is logic and man's wisdom and reasoning, human reasoning. I'm looking at the scriptures. The scriptures are clear. There's no winning. And I've, I've been on that path before. There's no winning. He walked away from that conversation, no doubt, believing more than ever he was right. I was wrong. And he loved the Bible. And I was de denying it. And I'll never convince him otherwise. That's just how it goes. 
and, and have been there before. And some of you have been there before, perhaps. Maybe you haven't, but that's just how people, it's what the Pharisees did with Jesus. They had the verses. They had the receipts. You can't convince them otherwise. They weren't convinced otherwise with Jesus either. But what can you do? But again, like everybody else, they have a verse, but they missed the point. By the way, and I guess I've got to say this, and I know I need to move on, but let me just say this. I, I, one of the things I always cringe about in fundamentalist religion is how women always get mistreated by the men in, in control. Fundamentalist religion, especially the dress code, is always weird. You ever notice that in fundamentalist, some of the fundamentalist streams of charismatic movements, some Pentecostal groups and others, the women have all got to wear dresses only and no makeup or hair or things or whatever. And the guys can do whatever, mostly. In fundamentalist Baptist circles, the girls had those dress codes. The guys were a little more open. And in fundamentalist Islam, in Muslim churches, in fundamentalist Islam, there's certain rules that the, for the girls to dress. In fact, one time, Michelle and I and our kids were at Yellowstone National Park. We're at Yellowstone National Park, and if you've never been there, you should go. But let me just tell you the most overrated thing in, in the Yellowstone National Park. Anyone want to guess what's overrated there? Old Faithful. Overrated. It's a big geyser that goes up once every so on the clock, and it's, you got to stand away from it, big fence, away from it, and oh, there it goes. Okay, go on. It's the most overrated. There's always a crowd there. It's full of people. And we went over to the fence trying to get a place to see, and we're surrounded by a bunch of Middle Eastern men. Never thought anything, didn't feel uncomfortable. Nothing, nothing was weird. But all of a sudden, a few minutes later, their, their, their wives or women came out of the bathrooms together or whatever, and they're all wearing black floor to head, covering their eyes. Only their eyes were showing through by the, all of them. And it was just like, oh, is this a religious extreme group? And it's just, it was so intense to see the girls come out. They're like, oh, wow. You know, it, just, it was impactful. You didn't notice that when the guys were there because their husbands were all wearing shorts and T-shirts like I was. But that's like going to a Walmart and seeing a Baptist bus pull up right there, you know. The guys run in, and they're in their shorts and T-shirts, and then the girls come out, and they're, oh, and you're like, oh, who are these people? It's just what happens. It's just what happens. Because the girls are always expected. It's, always, it's what happens in everything down the line. The guys are in charge. They end up saying at some point things like, well, you know, um, and they, they sweep sexual misconduct happens. They get swept under the rug so often in those circles. Some of us came from denominations that had sexual impropriety co covered up because protect the guys. Sexuality itself is taught not as being something to, for pleasure for the girl, but as being meeting the needs of the man. Dress codes are for the girls specifically more, and they can't talk, and they can't speak, and they can't lead or anything because, bless God, they're girls. It's just a whole system. It's easy to have a verse and miss the point i got to give you another one before I get to the main thing, and then we'll be done. That means nothing right now. Um, a more recent example in history is slavery. I used this a few months ago, but I want to come back to it for just a couple minutes here. Um, I know that we all agree slavery was wrong, but 160 years ago, we were in a civil war fighting for, against slavery. And a bunch of um, people who were in slave owners, many of them were Christians, not all of them by any means, but a lot of them were Christians. Pastors, church leaders. In fact, some of us came from Baptist denominations where the founders of the denomination were slave owners and, and uh, such. And we look back on it, and to be honest, you know, we, they've never been reconciled or, or answered honestly or dealt with or repented from. There's a lot of undertone of racism in America still today. It's a sad thing. But, and that's why we're non-denominational. We just want to serve the Lord in our community and stay away from the, the, the pettiness of all that space. But here's the thing I'm saying. In the years of slavery, there were Christians, pastors, 
church people, went to church, memorized the scriptures, sang the hymns, and owned slaves. And we look at today and say, well, they were wrong, but they had a verse. They had lots of verses, actually. In fact, you know what the slave owners who were Christians would say when they were told by abolitionists that it was wrong? You know what they would say? Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the opposite. In fact, they would quote verses like this, 1 Peter 3.18. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only when they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. That's really nice, isn't it? Even the cruel ones, you just obey them too. That's how it is. Why? For God is pleased. When conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient. If you are beaten for doing wrong, you had that one coming. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, well, God is pleased with you. Say, well, Arlen, come on now, to be nice. He's talking to slaves. What else could they do? He's just trying to tell them to make the best of a bad situation. He's not talking to the owners. I'm glad you brought them up. Several times, there's a scripture verse where it talks to the, the masters. Here's one of them, Colossians 4.1. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Why not say, masters, you're believers now. Get, stop having slaves. Knock it off. I say, no, just be just and fair. Slaves, you be good even if they're cruel. Christian masters, just you can have them, just don't be cruel. It's a little heart that's true. You know, hey, just, just be, um, be good ones. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. So, you know, it's kind of a whole scheme there, right? I mean, you're like, Arlen, I'm confused. Are you dissing the Bible today? No, I love the Bible. I'm saying you can get a verse. Support everything you want to support. Even if it's not the point. In fact, let me just create the attention a little longer. Let me just go a little down further down that path. Well, before I do, I just want to say, let me answer this real quick. This was the culture that before you say, well, what's your answer to somebody who, who's skeptical of Christianity who says slavery in the Bible, misogyny against women, patriarchy, and slavery in the Bible? What's your answer to them? And my answer to them, when they show verses like this, is simply this. Jesus did not come to fix all of society's ills. He came to bring an eternal kingdom. He came to die for sins to show us that by paying for our sins, he brought us eternal life and he modeled how to live in this life for us and told us to go do likewise and in doing so, the world becomes a better place. Jesus was actually very progressive when it comes to slavery and women's rights. But in those days, women didn't have much and neither did slaves. It was just a bad world. They lived in a different time. People owned people. Women, you know, were property. No one could vote because there's no democracies. Um, Women couldn't testify in court. They were considered unreliable witnesses because they were women. You know, we need a witness. Who, who saw it? I did. Who are you? I'm a woman. Never mind. You know, they couldn't own property. If a man's wife died, he could remarry. If a woman's husband died, she was stuck because she was damaged goods. Usually, they were prostitutes or beggars or something else. It was a bad time. People owned slaves, and Jesus didn't come in there and say, "I'm tearing down Rome. I'm building a better earthly kingdom." He didn't do that. He gave his life and died on the cross to bring eternal life. He didn't fight Caesar. He didn't fight paying his taxes. He just existed in the system and taught a spiritual kingdom was bigger than that one. And as the early church emerged, they didn't fix all society's problems either. They just simply said, "If we will love one another like Christ loved us." This will work itself out. And it took a long time. It took the printing press being invented and people being able to read the Bible for themselves and literacy rates going up for people to figure out, hey, we shouldn't own slaves. <laughs> we shouldn't treat women like that. It took a long time to figure that out. But the scriptures and the, the teachings of Jesus led us there in time. But yeah, these things existed back then. And for people a couple hundred years ago to say, well, slavery is okay because there's a Bible verse that says so, is missing the point. 
In fact, in Paul's letter to Timothy, this is another tough verse to read. Paul's writing a pastoral epistle to Timothy. The pastoral epistles, chapter 6, verse 1. All slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. If the masters are believers, there is no excuse for being disrespectful. Weird. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. God loves your master because he's a believer, so you should work all the harder for him. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. He's saying, is the Bible wrong? No. I'm saying they have a verse. People who, you defended it. Slavery because of verses like that. They, have ver- they had several verses, but they missed the point. They missed the point that, that we understand today, but at the time they didn't. They missed the point that people who said girls got to wear dresses only have a verse, but missed the point. The Crusades, the Pharisees on the Sabbath day, lots of verses, missing the point. And we're okay with all of that until it gets to one of our pet issues. But we need to look at the Bible holistically or else we're going to be in danger of getting it wrong. Here's another example. Some people say women can't, can't uh, use their gifts and, and serve, to serve the Lord because they're women. In fact, there's a Bible verse for that. There's a few. The central one is in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, women should learn quietly. Same, same pastoral epistle that Paul just read about the slaves from. He says in chapter 2, women should, be, should learn quietly and submissively. Verse 12, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them learn quietly. Now there's a couple other verses. Again, the, most of them are in Timothy. But like the other, everything else we talked about today, there's all the verses that people attach to it. But this is, the, this is the core. This is the strength of the argument with a few supporting other spots in Timothy and this is, the, this is the argument. Can't do it. Women can't do it. They can't speak. They can't lead. They can't have authority. I have, a, I have a verse. And I just want to say once again, it's like everything else we're talking about. You can have a verse. And this is the point. For one, and before I get to some other verses, I want to say this to you. For one, we never look at context. I know context is a big bad word. We never looked at the fact that in the context of those times, for the most part, women didn't have the kind of rights to have anything to say. And in most cultures, again, they, didn't know, they, just, they, were, they were just treated like property themselves. But in Ephesus, where Paul's writing to Timothy, who's leading the church in Ephesus, in Ephesus, it was the opposite. It was everything else in culture subdued women. But in Ephesus, that city, they actually had a, a reverse culture where it was actually Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians, was worshipped. And there was actually a religion of, of uh, female supremacy and woman worship. That was pretty heavy. And, and, and Paul's just talking the same way he talks in Acts 15 when James talks about the Jewish believers going to Gentile cities and finding that common ground instead of trying to keep them to circumcision. Paul's speaking to a context here in those verses that we just read. But if you want to grab those verses and say, here's my verse, the Pharisees had verses with Jesus and they were right. And a lot of other people that we don't agree with have verses too. But do we miss the point? Because elsewhere throughout the scripture, you see people and women in the early church. And we go down so many examples, but what do we do about them? For example, let's look at Romans 16 for a minute. Romans 16, verse 1 says, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church of Centria. Now, this is important right here. Because this is, you should know this. Every single time that the Greek word is translated 
that means deacon, is translated deacon. In a few hundred years ago, in the early English translations of the Bible, like the King James and a few others back then, a few hundred years ago, they would translate the Greek word deacon to be deacon. But in this particular case, when it says Phoebe was a deacon, they would translate it to servant. Their defense was, well, deacon means servant. But we'll always translate it deacon for all the guys, and when it's a girl, we're going to translate it the other way. Because again, a few hundred years ago, let's be honest, slavery ended 150 years ago in America. 50 years later, women couldn't, still couldn't vote in elections. It was a different culture. So we did, but she was a deacon, and we, people are calling this out now and getting it right. Because it always was before recent biases in the recent centuries. Not only was she a deacon, but look at verse 2. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. i got to say this. Again, we don't rightly divide the scriptures when we do guys and girls. But let's rightly divide the scriptures. You can just study Paul's writings when he talks about someone being worthy of honor or double honor sometimes in his writings, he's referring to financial compensation and leadership, respect, and esteem. Every time, let's not make an exception for the girl. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many, especially to me. He goes on to say this, verse 3, Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Never mind that the idea of being co-workers means he was doing leadership church work, and they were his co-workers, it must be something different because Priscilla's a girl. She's even mentioned first. But Priscilla and her husband Aquila did not only do ministry work with, with Paul, but they actually mentored a young man. Priscilla and her husband Aquila mentored a young man named Paulus, who was a young preacher, who had some bad doctrinal ideas and got him on the right course to, to, so he can preach the gospel of Jesus. We can go on. Verse 7. Give Andro, Andronicus, I love that name, Andronicus, and Junia, my fellow Jews who were in prison with me, uh, Junia is a Greek feminine name. And it's problematic for some people because it says next that they are highly respected among the apostles became, and became followers of Christ before I did. And we, we dance around the wording so well now. But the idea was not that the apostles respected them. It was among the apostles. Remember, apostles is a bigger word. It wasn't just the 12 disciples, or 11 after Judas, that were apostles. It was all the disciples, the 70 that followed Jesus, the 120 in the upper room, people who were witnesses of the resurrection, and went and testified about it, were called apostles. There were many apostles. But anyhow, he's among the apostles. This man and this woman, hardly said that among them, the word I among them is the same way that some of you know the churches that have elder boards. Say the pastor is another elder. He's a leader among equals. She was a respected among the apostles. Is the only way to understand the Greek as you study that. So because of that, you not only change Phoebe from being a deacon to a servant because she's a girl, they, they put an S at the end of Junia in some of your older stuff, try to make it a man because we don't want to say a woman who was an apostle or something, you know, weird. We can go on. Um, Paul says in Philippians 4.2, I, I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche. These are two women. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. Now we have our first really good reason why women should not be in charge because they can't get along with each other. I'm just joking. Don't, don't, get, don't get mad at me now. I'm just joking. Okay. All right. I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. In other words, what I'm doing, they're doing it with me. They're doing the same thing. So we can either diminish what Paul's doing so we can't give them credit or they can say that they were like Paul in their ministry. And they worked along with Clement, that's a man, and the rest of my co-workers, our co-servant leaders, who are names are written in the book of life. 
We can go on and on. Here's one more. Uh, Acts 21.8, Paul and Luke are traveling together. Luke is writing, and Luke says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, the first seven deacons or whatever that were picked in the church. Philip, and we stayed with him. Verse number nine, it says, He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Once again, playing Bible games to twist it away when it's convenient. Every time I've ever heard someone who's, uh, you know, fundamentalist, biblical, verse this, verse that, always admits always admits fully and defends that prophesying contextually is preaching, prophesying, proclaiming with authority to other people, to crowds leading, you know, is proclaiming and is preaching. Always. No one ever questions that until it gets to these daughters because they can't possibly be doing that because they're girls. So you have all these verses. But someone will come along and say, yeah, but in Timothy, in Ephesus, Paul was saying before he talked about the slaves, he says, you know, women should be quiet. Yeah, you have a verse. You got a few verses. But there are other verses. What do we believe the Bible is contradicting each other itself? And, and again, this is not, it's not, I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself. I believe that the problem is not the Bible. The problem is our view of God and our view of the Scriptures. If we're not careful, we'll have a view of the Scriptures that we zone in on finding a verse to say, here's my position and here's my verse and I'm right. And if you don't believe it, you don't believe the Bible. Or we step back and look at the whole picture that's what Jesus was doing with the Pharisees. You guys have a verse about the Sabbath food. You're, you got your verse. But step back from the verse and look at the big picture. I don't have a verse to counter your verse. I just got a better view. David did this, and here's a better, and we should, from Jesus and the Pharisees to every example I've given you, people have always had verses, but missed the point. And in this case, a lot of Christians have had verses about what women can and cannot do, but we've missed the point. We can go on and on. We can talk about how that women weren't allowed to testify and be witnesses, but Jesus allowed the first resurrection, witnesses of his resurrection be women. We can talk about Mary and Martha at their house with, with Lazarus, their brother, and, and the disciples sat at the feet of the rabbi as disciples and leaders in training, and Mary sat with them. And Martha comes out of the kitchen and says, Mary should be in here working with me. And Jesus is like, no, she's right where she's supposed to be. What does that mean? What does that not mean? I don't know. Bottom line is the macro view of the Bible seems to indicate that God was very progressive on a lot of issues, including how we own people or don't own people, how we treat people, how women are esteemed. But you can always find a verse. You can always find a verse if you want to be in that lane. I said it at the start, and I'll say it here at the end. We either end up being zealous in this path to fight about what's right and condemn who is wrong and stake our flag on issues in our comfort zones and say this is, and, and, and this is acceptable and you can and you can't. We can go down that path and be zealous about that. And churches do that. But I, in all of my life, and I see it in the scriptural accounts with Jesus, you never end up being, seeing anyone on that path serving well other people very long. Just a token efforts here and there just feel good. You can go down that path, or we can end up being zealous to serve others and labor to show God's love and humility, pointing people to him for, in doing so. And the paths will diverge. It might not be obvious at first. It might take some years to flesh out before we run into our no-go zones. But at some point, at some point down our journey, these paths will diverge due to their ideological differences of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Christ, what it means to experience Scripture, what it means to live like the Lord. And my life experience and the Scriptures have taught us that. And I want to get it right. I want to be our church that is so wrapped up in being for our community. What do we always say here? For far too long, the church has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for what we are for. We are for Cedar Lake. We are for our community. We have had so many inroads. 
serving in our community lately. I've had some really cool moments lately that I don't have time today to share with you that just happened. They're just happening like crazy, like dominoes lately because open doors from, from serving. But here's the thing. I, the longer I get there, the less I can stomach the, the things that drive people far from God because Christians fight about, with each other and with them about actually, actually, it happens all the time. Now here's the problem. I always want to be a church that's opening. By the way, I want our church to be very anti-racist in the sense of our town has been a very Caucasian town for a long time that is starting to shift a little bit dynamics, right? And as that does, I'm glad. Senator Lakes needed this a long time. I want our church to reflect our community and its demographic and love people of all backgrounds and stripes. I want to be a church that empowers everyone to use their spiritual gifts for Christ, including our women, whether they're gifted with God, by God to be leaders or speakers, that we say, use your gifts as God has given you to. We're going to empower you. Male or female, black, white, poor, rich. As God calls us, we're just going to get busy saying, let's get together and focus on the big picture of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Will that be satisfying to everybody? No, it won't be. But as I've realized with my friend about the girls and the pants issue, there's some arguments you just can't win with people. I've learned a long time ago to walk away sad that there's just no winning certain conversations. And I will forever be wrong. And I know that and I accept that. We'll stand before God and let him sort it out. But I just want to be down this path so hard of getting away from the mentality that sticks us there. In fact, here's, I want to say this before I go. Um, Jesus, you want a verse to hang your theology on. Jesus is about to go to the cross He's about to be arrested that night. He's with his disciples having one last meal. And as he's eating his last meal, he gives his disciples a brand new commandment. The last thing anyone needed was another commandment. But Jesus was saying, I'm giving you, this is what following me looks like. Here's new marching orders. And he said this. He says, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. And just in case love is ambiguous, well, I love them enough to tell them what's wrong with them. <laughs> He says, ambiguous, whatever. He said, let me tell you what it looks like. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. In other words, I'm about to go to a cross tomorrow and show you what love looks like. And it's pretty radical. I left the splendors of heaven, put my privilege aside, and I became a servant to all to point people to the kingdom of heaven. I told you I was going to quote something you showed me, Ron, the other day when we had coffee together because I loved it so much. It was timely for me. Ron Porter showed me a statement by... Um, Francis Chan, thank you, Francis Chan, who said, imagine, I'm going to get this wrong probably, imagine a world in which Christians literally were going to be crucified for each other, literally. What kind of a testimony that would be? What kind of a shock? I'm butchering this thing to the world that would be. That's what Jesus was saying. In fact, here's what he says in the next verse. This will this will back it up. Your love for one another that he's modeling tomorrow, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Man, I'm passionate for that. I'm passionate for that. And it's, this is prescriptive. This is prescriptive. That Jesus gave this prescription. It's not just descriptive. He gave another prescription too. He said, go out and preach the gospel, goodness to everybody, and baptize them and teach them to do the same. You can read the book of Acts. We have a description in the book of Acts. It's a description of the early church historically doing what Jesus prescribed. The epistles are full of the description of the correspondence letters describing the early first century church in correspondence doing what Jesus prescribed, which is to love one another and preach the good news everywhere and spread the message. 
And when we get away from the prescription and we get hung up on finding a verse in the description to hang some things on to say, I'm right, you're wrong, you can't do that, you can't do that, I'm right, I'm against you, we're breaking off. When you get to, into the details of the, in the description and pick a verse, you can have a verse that miss the point. When we look at the prescription that Christ gave, it's so clear where we're supposed to lay our life down and what we're supposed to do. And here's what I'm trying to say. And by the way, Paul said that, all, not just Paul, all the apostles said, and this is my last verse and I'll be done, I promise. Um, Paul said this, and so did they, they always said, we're supposed to love one another. Here's what that looks like. We're supposed to one another, one another. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Honor one another. Paul said in Galatians 5, verse 13, use your freedom. You're free. Use your freedom to serve one another in love. And then he makes a statement that you can't miss. He says this, for the whole law can be summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul, you're like, Paul, there's a lot more commands than that one. But Paul says, I know, but I'm pulling away from the micro I got a verse, I got a verse. I'm pulling back from the micro, looking at the big picture, the macro view, the entirety of the law. It all comes down to this one major concept that you cannot overlook. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you got it figured out. As I wrap this up, I just want to be a person who's consumed that direction. I want to use my leadership as long as God lets me have any, and it's his grace that I don't deserve to have any, but if he gives me any leadership, I want to use my leadership that direction. I honestly am weary of the opposite path in my religious life. I am weary. I've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, and I want to put it, send it to gleaners. I'm asking you to help make Lighthouse such a church. We empower people. We focus on what matters. We leave all those things that everyone gets worked about. Just... You, you fight that out. I'm too busy to fight that out. We've got to go make a difference. It stirs me, gives me goosebumps. It brings me to tears too often. I've got to be done. But let's be for the people that God is for. Let's not have, let's not miss the point.